Last night, Tanisara spoke about the Four Noble Truths. For some of us, that might be a new teaching. For other, others, uh, many of us, perhaps, we've, uh, you know, we've heard that. I, I've got that. I've memorized them. And suffering calls, end of suffering, path. Let's make some progress, Kitty Sorrow. Can't we go to something deeper? But just to encourage us all that, that these four truths aren't just... Yes, it's good to re- memorize them as a part of learning, contemplating, understanding, but then remembering the need to practice and to see the Dharma and ultimately become the Dharma. This is an ongoing activity. And that these truths uh, are... Immature sense of truth is, or is just remembering phrases of truth that we can remember. But these sorts of noble truths aren't aren't like that. They're, as Tanisha said, they are ennobling reflections. They're not absolute truths to be grasped at. In a sense, they're mirrors. Each of them is a mirror to encourage us to reflect on a different aspect of our experience that we tend to take for granted, make assumptions about. Erroneous assumptions based on ignorance, as Tanisra spoke about last night, ignoring, based on just taking the appearance of things as being good or bad, or pleasant, or unpleasant, or mine, or yours, grasping at the appearance through ignorance, not really understanding the true, dynamic, ever-changing, elusive nature of the conditioned world. But these four ennobling truths, these reflections, are, are helpful for, for a lifetime, many lifetimes. The Buddha told his disciples that uh, before I, he said, before I understood, fully understood these truths, each of these four truths in their three aspects, I then, just like you, he said, had to wander endlessly through suffering, through birth and death. Sometimes um, these uh, teachings can seem overwhelming. There's so much, and we can feel buried by it. 
just remembering again that we can't drink the ocean in, in a gulp. We can take a sip, savor that, taste that, ponder that, reflect on that. So even if there's a, a, a little bit, a phrase, a perspective, that's enough to work on. First Noble Truth of Dukkha, just to review, so we don't just skip over too quickly. Dukkha, do apart from, as Tanisara explained, ka, from akash, apart from the perfect. It's not perfect, not stable, not reliable that there is this experience, there is dukkha. There is that which is hard to bear, hard to be with. That's how he began. That's something we can relate to. It doesn't immediately throw us into a confrontation with uh, do we have to believe the speaker or not. As we were, were told by our teachers, the, the Buddha's first discourse, his very, very first one, was a flop. After he was enlightened in the bliss of, of uh, transcendence, having put down the burden, having seen through the, the endless cycle of becoming, having recognized that tendency to grasp and hope for the world of form and feeling and perception, etc., hope that world could sometime, could somehow be what it isn't. The stress of continually looking for stability in a place where there isn't stability, having seen that and let go and experienced the depth, the peace, the measurelessness of his own original brightness. He was radiant. And it is said that uh, someone noticed his radiance and came up and... Uh, commented on his radiance and just sort of asked, well, uh, you're very radiant. Your features are serene. Who's your teacher? <laughs> he thought he would... And, and the Buddha, it is said that the Buddha uh, was just speaking honestly, but he gave a lion's roar of, I'm the all-transcendent one. I don't have a teacher. <laughs> But what's the guy to do with that? He didn't know what to do with that. The all-transcendent one, the universal victor. He, he just, you know... <laughs> he said, well, that's good for you. <laughs> and, he, and it says he went off on a side path. He didn't... So then when the, when the Buddha actually <coughs> thought about... At first he was reluctant to teach because it's... How do you explain this? It's subtle. A world that's attached to the pleasing, attached to the pleasant, attached to becoming somebody, to give teachings on letting go, 
is, is, is very difficult. But then when he was really encouraged, it is said that a, that a uh, Brahma god appeared in front of him and said, but, but Lord, what about those with a little dust in their eyes who will fall away from the opportunity to realize the truth through not hearing it? That's, that's like the expression of compassion in the world. There was this uh, manifestation of what about those who are suffering? And, and the Buddha responded to that and then, and then thought about who he might teach. And he then remembered his, his uh, five uh, associates that he had practiced with earlier who, <laughs> who had abandoned him when, uh, when they felt... Uh, Gautama Siddhartha wasn't practicing hard enough when he had uh, reverted, when, when he had realized that he needed to eat to strengthen his body in order to cultivate samadhi. They thought he would, had just taken the easy path. So when he remembered his friends and uh, saw with his inner vision where they were at the deer park outside of Benares, he made his way and then when he got there, he, he gave the first teaching, which Tanishra laid out last night, on the Four Noble Truths. But rather than starting with, the, I'm the all-transcendent one, or rather than starting with Nibbana, he could have... Uh, got them all to repeat after me. Nibbana. Come on, don't be shy. Repeat after me. Nibbana. Come on, you're not putting enough oomph into it. He could have... He, he didn't do that because you start, well, what's he talking about? Do you believe him? Do you not believe him? In fact, they were very disbelieving. How could you, who's a softy, who had accepted milk rice from a maiden... Months ago, I'm sure they were still remembering that, and she was beautiful too. <laughs> you know, she touched it. You, from her, that's basically like getting ice cream from a beautiful girl. He's still probably holding to that. You know, okay, we'll, we'll be nice to you. You can sit down, but uh, we don't want teachings from you. But he then began with, there is suffering. We can relate to that. And he didn't even say, you guys are suffering. I'm not. <laughs> but you guys are suffering. He didn't say that. It's there is dispassionate. Already that's the approach of these teachings. It's a reflection on how things are. There is suffering. And what we chant in the recollection in the morning when, uh, when there's the description of suffering, it's, it's what we can relate to. These experiences that aren't easy to be with, birth is suffering. Old age is suffering. Sickness is suffering. Death is suffering. These are things we can relate to, the, the, the challenges, the pain, the difficulties of birth for the mother or for the child. Old age. It's 
quite a few of us here that are that are uh, meeting that which is not easy to bear with our bodies. That ache. Tanisha and I, in, in, this, in our less skillful moments, when we wake up in the morning, we have a we have a mantra. That's not one that we suggest that you take up, but sometimes we wake up and think it's too difficult. And then she says, it's too difficult. Feeling the aches, feeling the pains. The knees, the ankles, the eyes going dim. Skin, getting spots from the sun we have to be careful about. Aging's not easy. Death. Don't have to go into a big uh, proving of uh, that death is dukkha, not easy to bear. Right now, our little dearest, uh, most loyal friend in Africa is uh, dying. He's our head of security. He's head of reception. <laughs> He's vice chairman of the secret school subcommittee. (laughs) And I'm sorry, you can ask all you want to about it, but that is not to be talked about. (laughs) Our little four-legged friend came off the mountain when he was uh, two weeks old. He came out of the wilderness. There was an illegal hunting party up the mountain. And uh, they were after the baboons, a pack of dogs. And, and so I, being protective of the wilderness area, raced up the mountain and shouted, Aah! I don't know how wise that was, but I came down the mountain. An hour later, we heard a squeaking sound, and a little puppy had gotten separated from the pack, two weeks old. We never found where he came from, and he became our... Right when we first were in Africa, he's been our most loyal friend through betrayals, through difficulty, through traumas. There he's been. But now, I mean, to survive, he's been kidnapped, he's been poisoned, he's had tick bite fever three times, which usually kills you. He's a survivor, but now he's dying. And that experience when we have that which we cherish. When I tie my shoes before his morning walk, he would love to come and run and get his head right in, right in the middle of me tying the shoes. His head would appear. We know that experience of cherishing and then what we cherish is breaking down. There is dukkha, there is birth, old age, there is sickness, there is death. As we chant in the morning, there is being united with the unloved, being associated with that which you don't want to be with. You don't want to be with your loved ones in pain. A week before I left, he went into his first seizure. I was woke up in the middle of the night. I just woke up. I heard a thrashing, and there our little friend was in a seizure. We'd never seen a seizure before. Tanisha and I just tried to keep him from hurting himself. 
in the form that you... We were separated from the love, that form that we knew and, and, the, and being associated with him in pain. Didn't like that, but that's how it is. When you want to be peaceful, being associated with an invasive sound, it's not easy to bear. When you're sitting down to enjoy your meal and then the person that sits next to you is the last person you wanted to sit next to me. Maybe someone you have a difficulty with. Or it's opposite, being parted from the loved. Not easy to bear, but something we can relate to, that which we cherish, whether it's a beautiful state, whether it's a beloved friend, child, a grandchild, a partner, a parent, a grandparent. Not getting what you want. It's the seventh definition. Just to open the territory. Know how the Buddha opened this territory to these experiences we can relate to. He didn't go into a deep essay on emptiness. Nibbana. The deathless. The gateway to truth is by opening right to that which normally we don't want to open to. Normally we think something's wrong. And it's okay to try to fix things and try to heal and help. But to have an ennobling truth is there is this experience. All these are a part of how things are. There is this experience and it needs to be opened to. The un reflective tendency is to is to get away from it to seek the end of suffering by moving away from suffering then it haunts us and chases us because the eighth the eighth definition of dukkha is the most subtle but it's the one the contemplative we need to keep going into that eighth because it's the core of all of them and we chant it every morning it's in your chanting book the five focuses of the grasping mind are dukkha. When the mind is grasping, what are these five focuses? They're the aspects of what we take to be me, what we take to be real. Our body is, is form, all the forms around us. We can focus on my form or our little friend's form. The grasping mind focuses on, no, 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 but but when he put his head through like that, it was so beautiful and he was always so happy and loving. We, We want that form, that's the way, that's our Jack. The grasping mind has a form and it's natural, but if we really open to that experience and open to form... as we've been doing on this retreat, opening to the form of our own body. What is the nature of form? 
as I spoke about, ever-changing, breathing in, breathing out. Heartbeat pulsing. Sensations cascading and shifting. Energy, vitality, swinging all over the place. It's an accomplishment for me to be sitting here this morning. I've been so tired today. That's part of the world of form. The light, the temperature, the wind, the moisture content. Yet the grasping mind doesn't know that. It it takes a form. No, it should be like that. A focus of the grasping mind is dukkha because we take a snapshot, we, we take how we think it should be, and then we hold to that, wanting life to be like that, when it isn't. It just isn't. That's why it's dukkha. It's not that actually old age, sickness, and death in and of themselves are somehow inherently suffering, but it's the when the grasping mind takes hold of something and doesn't want to acknowledge its true nature, then there's a friction, there's a tension. There's trying to shift that big boulder, trying to lift that big boulder that Tanisra spoke about last night. That's just the first aspect of our, what we call me and you, is form. Then there's feeling, being pleased, pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, neutral feeling. Now we're getting into a very subtle realm, feelings. You can't point to a feeling, but you sure can feel them. You can't point to pain, but when you're in pain, when I'm in pain... Sure seems real. Even a tiny little toe, the little insignificant little toe, when you, when you stub your toe, incredible amount of unpleasant feeling can be there. Or a painful knee. Yet the focus of the grasping mind, feeling, it's so easy to take a pleasant feeling, a feeling when everything's just right. feeling of calm, smoothness, a feeling of our loved one when they smile at us, a feeling of a friend when they pat us and say, you're doing well. It's beautiful. Yet again, the grasping mind, when the grasping mind focuses on feeling and then wants that to be mine, real. It's shrouded by a, a blindfold, our vision, because we're not really aware that feeling its nature is ever-changing. So that's what's called birth when we Grasp, that's what the Buddha called upadana. Some translate that as climbing up onto. When we, when we grasp and climb onto or identify with, we rest on, we make our basis on that as a real certain thing. 
It's like building our house where there's not a firm foundation. Then when the sand shifts, the house crumbles. When we build our house on a pleasant feeling, we, we seek that as me, as how I want to feel. Then when it shifts, we're shaken. Feeling and then even more subtle perceptions, thoughts, impulses. So the Buddha encouraged us that the pathway to the end of suffering is by opening to suffering. Because if we just run away, how can we understand something and recognize how we're perpetuating it if we turn away? It makes sense, doesn't it, that what we open to, what we give space to, what we're humble enough to allow in, and actually what we're allowing in is, is life. These are not these rare, rare, out-of-the-way things, birth, old age, sickness, death, associated with the unloved, separated from the loved, not getting what we want. This is life, opening to that experience when it's not easy then we can begin to see the grasping. As Ajahn Chah would say, the looking for certainty where it isn't. That clinging to pleasant feeling. The the Buddha described it like this. He says, when we don't understand the nature of this pleasant feeling, he, d- he said, it's like when we're suffering, we've already been shot with an arrow. There's a painful feeling. But when we don't really understand, we inflict upon ourselves a second arrow. We intensify the pain. Here's the way the Buddha described it. He was talking to the monks, but it's for all of us. Monks, when an uninstructed worldling, someone who doesn't really practice, experiences a painful feeling, they sorrow, grieve, lament, weep, beating their breast. They become distraught. They feel two feelings, a bodily feeling and a mental feeling. Suppose they were to strike a man with an arrow and then strike him immediately afterwards with a second arrow so that the man would feel a feeling caused by two arrows. So too, when the uninstructed person who doesn't contemplate experiences a painful feeling, he feels two feelings, the bodily one and a mental one. While experiencing that painful feeling, he harbors aversion toward it. When he harbors aversion toward the painful feeling, the underlying tendency to aversion, to pain, is accumulated. So when we get a painful feeling, then we're adding to that painful feeling 
aversion to the pain. We deepen our tendency to not like pain. That's that second arrow. While experiencing that painful feeling, then he seeks delight in pleasure. Why? Because the uninstructed person who does not contemplate doesn't know of any other escape from pain except finding something pleasant. He doesn't know any escape from pain other than pleasure. When seeking delight in pleasure, the underlying tendency to lust for pleasant feeling is accumulated. He doesn't really understand the the origin, the passing away, the blessing, the danger, the escape from any of these feelings. By not understanding these things, the underlying tendency to ignorance is accumulated. So when he feels a pleasant feeling, he's attached. An unpleasant feeling, he's attached. A neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he's attached. But when a contemplator, a noble disciple experiences a painful feeling, he does not sorrow or grieve or lament, does not weep beating his breast and become distraught. He feels one feeling, the bodily feeling, not a mental one. Suppose they were to strike someone with an arrow, but they would not strike him immediately afterwards with a second arrow. I hope that's not too subtle, but Buddhas still experience pain. It's not that when we're practicing, we're not going to have any pain. There's still the pain of loss, the pain of pain, the pain of the instability of life. But looking at that tendency to inflict that second arrow of anguish, of of continually trying to make it what it's not. And in our meditation uh, today, I hope we can have the trust, the trust to, this is where the first faculty, can we trust, can our trust, our faith, It's not just the faith in Nibbana, Nibbana, Nibbana. It's the faith that it's okay to open our heart, open our awareness to that which is pleasing, but also to that which is difficult. To listen to that. And then listen to how we inflict the second arrow. Again, we don't need to be ashamed of that. It's only through understanding how suffering is perpetuated that we can get beyond it. Noticing how when, when we're struggling, the mind might say, oh, it shouldn't be this way. I shouldn't be this way. Blaming ourselves or blaming someone else. 
or noticing if we're just escaping the painful feeling, wanting to disconnect, disassociate, or escaping the painful feeling just by wanting to conk out. Without judging, just to, to notice that. Just to, to give attention to this second truth, the truth of what perpetuates suffering, this mind that, that wants to go out and find something pleasant to keep, or the mind that's averse and tries to push things away. Watching our mind with all its shoulds, we have a, a friend who's the abbot of a monastery up north, uh, Ajahn Manindo, a great teacher, great practitioner. And, uh, you know, in meditation, your business is sitting, basically. You're... So when he had two knees operated on at the same time, and he was in a Thai hospital kind of laid out like that, in a lot of pain, he couldn't sit. And Ajahn Chah went to visit him, and he just said to Ajahn Chah, complaining, he said, Lung Paul, which means Venerable Father, Lung Paul, it shouldn't be this way. I mean, this is ridiculous. How can I be a monk? Laid out like this. And Ajahn Chah said, if it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way. And looking at the the should, the shoulding is like pushing these boulders, lifting these boulders, and, and to to get a sense when we're struggling with how how it is. Can we get a feeling? Can we sense the suffering of that, the strain of that? We might not be able to let go. That's all right. To really contemplate the suffering, the second arrow the anguish that we add to life by pushing and pulling. And to give ourselves credit for at least being honest enough to see that, that we're already in the territory of the ennobling truths, even if we can't let go. We're developing the capacity, as Tanisra was speaking last night, the capacity to be with suffering. That's compassion. Come means together with passion, the suffering. To be with suffering is a blessing, to be able to be with suffering. Maybe we get a bit panicky, but any moments that we practice that, we're deepening our capacity and our breadth of our heart to include a wider range of experience. And though we might not let go, Ajahn Chah encouraged us to give ourselves credit that, that to even know we're suffering is 70% of it. We might not be able to let go, but even knowing that, at least knowing we're, we're, we're looking in the right place, we, we don't know how to let go of our aversion to pain. We don't know how to let go of our clinging to our beloved one. We don't want it to change. But just being able to Ponder that. Dwell with that.
is a blessing. Can we trust that? And in moments, as we sit and walk, in moments, we notice our struggling. Notice in moments if the struggling, just even for moments, if the pain or the difficulty becomes just what it is. Notice in moments is where there still might be an aching back, there still might be fatigue, there still might be distraction. (coughs) But we realize in a moment, gee, I'm not making anything out of it. It's not suffering, it is just what it is. A moment of letting go, letting things be. Noticing those moments. Savoring those moments. Not being afraid of suffering. The teacher who taught us about Kuan Yin, Master Xun Hua, said, I like suffering. Through opening to suffering, we transcend suffering. We're able to help other living beings learn from their suffering. His motto was, everything is okay. Now, I've not arrived at everything is okay. But it's a mantra that's helpful. Everything's okay. To encourage us to be with this. And then in moments when we allow the perfection of the in and the out breath, of birth, the beloved, the lovely moments, say like of our friend putting his head close to me even when I'm tying the shoe, and also the seizures, the fading out, the passing of that form. Can we honor the brightness and the darkness And in moments of letting things come and go, honoring the beautiful, ephemeral, ever-changing nature of form and feeling and thought and impulse. There's a possibility then of recognizing that it's all happening within this brightness, this measurelessness, this vastness that has everything within it our own heart, right here. But if we're so convinced that it's over there, at that feeling, over there at that place, over there at that person, over anywhere except right here with this that I don't want, then we're always running, running, and we never arrive where like that ant on that long journey round and round and round and round and round. So in our practice to say today, giving ourselves permission to be here in our walking path, one step at the end of the path, pause an extra moment and notice something that wants to keep going. Come on, hurry, hurry, get another round in. And just 
Give ourselves permission to feel that restlessness well up. Let ourselves stretch. Or in eating, notice the tendency to so quickly, as the mouthful's starting to, 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 don't want that pleasant feeling to go, and you quickly get another one. The way to the end of birth and death is by embracing death. Embracing a mouthful has a beginning and it has an ending. A sound has a beginning and an ending. In honoring that things have an ending. In letting things come and go. Savoring the ending. Each sound has an ending back into silence. Each thought has an ending back into presence. And that will take us, take us home, take us right here to where we've always been.